31. And again, we're covering several chapters, skipping the stones over the surface and concentrating on certain key themes and verses. I've said it before, um, there are two parallel lines in history and we see them in scripture. It's like train tracks, think of parallel lines. And the lines are these, God's promise of blessing and his warning of punishment. Started in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, help yourself to all the wonderful food and play with the animals, but don't eat from that tree or you will die. Do you see the promise of blessing, the threat of punishment? And then uh, that happens to all human beings that are under the wrath of God, but God offers blessing through the gospel. Believe in Jesus, you'll be saved, forgiven, go to heaven. But if you don't, you're facing an eternal hell. What about in the Christian life? Well, a similar principle happens. He promises to reward us. Not We don't earn salvation, but once we are saved, we can accumulate rewards in heaven by obeying, serving, and sacrificing for him. But then there's also the negative. There's that other parallel line, chastening when we grossly disobey him. Tonight's message is entitled, Wheel and Woe. We know what woe is. It's a warning, a threat of punishment, something bad to happen. Kind of like a parent that says, one, don't make me count to three. Do, do you ever say that? Mothers learn that, don't make me count to three. One, two, or you'll be punished in some way. That's woe. Wheel is related to the word wealth. It means prosperity, good, blessing. And so in olden days, people talked about wheel and woe. And that's what we see here. And all of this, we say, well, where do those two train tracks end up? Heaven or hell? Okay, chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those that go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many, and so on and so forth. Abraham went down to Egypt, and he made a mistake. And his son Isaac went down there later. He also made a mistake. And so God says, don't go down to Egypt. You've been delivered from there. You were once slaves there. Don't go back to your old slavery. And what Isaiah is rebuking is Israel in his day that were making peace treaties and military alliances with Egypt to try to stave off the Babylonians. And it didn't work. And he said, well, it's not going to work. Turn to God. And you're relying on horses and chariots? Why not God? Fast forward today with the war in Israel and Gaza. Egypt is just south of Gaza, so that's where a lot of the Palestinians are going, and Israel has to deal with them. Egypt doesn't want to fight Israel, but they're kind of caught in this. The principle for us is let's trust in God, not in anybody else. Even humans will fail us. Certainly horses will fail us. Military alliances will fail us as well. By the way... Israel knows that. And Netanyahu and others will say, sometimes our allies have let us down. We can only trust ourselves. And that's why they built up so many military reserves to protect themselves, because they say, we don't really know if we can trust even America. Okay, verses 4 and 5, God promised to protect Israel. Uh, even though the Babylonians were about to invade. And so someone might say, wait, wait, how can you say that God saved them 
when God allowed the Babylonians to take them over. Yes, but don't forget what happened afterwards. God freed them from the Babylonians and then the Persians, just like he freed them from the Egyptians, so he didn't abandon them. And the same applies to us today. God has saved us. He will keep us safe even when he chastens us, when we go through trials. Inside secret is we're going to make it to heaven. God's not going to give us up. Verses 6 and 7, look at the key word there. Return to him. Go back. Turn around. Often the prophets said that, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Return to the Lord. You see, return meant people had turned away from God. God saying, return back to me. What do we call that? Repentance. Change of mind, change of direction. We're going this way. God says, about face, return to me. Repentance is necessary to go from being in a state of woe to a state of will. If you're going through a problem, that's God saying, turn back to me and I can help you. Return to the Lord. And if it involves sin, repent of sin that may have brought those problems your way. It also says here to throw away idols. Verse 7, in that day every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols. Throwing away silver and gold. Not just chunks of rock that have been carved and chiseled or pieces of wood. Imagine throwing away a golden idol or one made of silver. It's like in, uh, what is it, Acts 19, when a lot of the people in Ephesus became Christians, they threw away their evil books of casting spells. And it says that they threw them all in a big fire and someone calculated it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Someone could have said, well, let's sell it and give the money to God. God says, that's tainted into the fire. And so same thing with idols. I'll give you a good use and a misuse of what's been done here. Um, every summer I go and do some studying at a seminary and in the library they have a certain area where they have artifacts that have been dug up in archaeology. These are idols, little statues from the Canaanites and the things like that. I'm thinking, they're looking at that as archaeological art. They should destroy it because that's evil idolatry. On the other hand, there's some things that when a person gets saved, he gets rid of and throws away his pornography or uh, liquor goes and pours it down the drain. It says, not for me anymore. Some of you know I got converted out of a uh, druggy background, also drowning in alcohol. But when I got saved, I did what a lot of other hippies that became Christians. Yes, I was a hippie. And you know what we'd do? We'd take that bag of marijuana or the pills or whatever and we'd flush it down the toilet. And everybody'd say, amen, that was almost a... Ritual that some of us did. It's like it's gone. We're throwing it away and never going to bring it back. That's what repentance is. Prove it. Remember, that's what John the Baptist said to those that came. He said, who warned you? Repent, repent, and prove it. Prove it. How, how have you proved your repentance? Even in a physical way, like throwing out certain things, like idols here. It's garbage. Verses 8 and 9, Assyria... Uh, was later conquered by Babylon. Remember, Assyria conquered the north of Israel, but not the south. Babylon conquered Assyria and would later conquer southern Israel. And then Babylon would conquer, be conquered by Persia, and they would be conquered by the Greeks, who would be conquered by the Romans. 
But you remember the story that Assyria was banging on the gates of Jerusalem and God, in an interesting way, caused them to retreat. So he protected them from Assyria. Brings us to chapter 2 now. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. And so on. So there's a promise in verses 1 to 4 that um, this is the wheel. That you're going to come back and you're going to have peace. You're going to rebuild the temple. And there's going to be the restoration of the royal line going back to King David. Because God had promised that there will always be a king descended from David sitting on the throne in southern Israel. And who would be the ultimate king descended from David sitting on the ultimate throne? Well, Jesus. One of the themes of the Gospel of Matthew. He is the king of the Jews. <clears throat> Christmas was just a month ago. Isn't that what the wise men said? We have come to find him that is born king of the Jews. And that's Jesus, the ultimate son of David, the king descended from David. And he reigns not just over Israel, but over the whole world. Verses 5 to 8, spiritual foolishness is rebuked. Sometimes it's translated as folly. It says here, the foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness. But that's obvious. His heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness and so forth. Foolishness is foolish. It's, well, to be blunt, it's stupid. Um, and this is talking about spiritual foolishness contrasted with spiritual wisdom. You read about that especially in Proverbs, the fool as opposed to the sage, the, the wise men. And it's in spiritual things because I've known some men and women that were, you know, they, they dropped out of school. They, they don't know much book learning and certainly not much science, but they're spiritually wise. On the other hand, I have known some Real geniuses. I mean, that make me feel stupid. They're like rocket. In fact, I knew a couple of rocket scientists at seminary. We went to the same church. Anybody heard of the JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory? They, it's next door to California Institute of Technology out in um, Pasadena. Um, by the way, if you've ever seen that stupid show, um, the, um, the Big Bang Theory, it's talking about these super geniuses at, uh, at Caltech and JPL. We had a couple of them attend our church. They were really smart. They were rocket scientists. Geniuses. You know, IQs of like 180 or something. But sometimes a genius can lack common sense and no spiritual wisdom. So keep that in mind. There are some that are not smart by the world's standards, but they are wise by God's. And there are other ones that are smart by the world's standards, but not by God's. They're fools. For example, the Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There are geniuses at various universities that are atheists. And they are geniuses in the natural realm, but they're fools in God's book because they deny his existence. Verses 9 to 11 starts out interesting. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Excuse me. Here he addresses the women in Israel, because he's otherwise addressing the men. And uh, so it's a call to the Hebrew women in Israel, and it says they are at ease. In other words, they're lazy, they're not 
Well, they're like these foolish men previously rebuked. And they're probably enjoying a certain degree of natural weal and wealth. This is parallel to a verse over in Amos. It says, woe to those that are at ease in Zion. They feel their prosperity. Everything's going their way. They can just pop their feet up and eat chocolates and sip you know, special coffee. They're at ease. Sometimes Christians get like that. We, as I said this morning, they think Christianity is a playground instead of a battleground. But here it says, you know, what are those women in Israel that are at ease? And um, it shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't just prop up our feet and just say, well, I'm safe so I can go my way. This would apply to America, not just men and women and Christians and non-Christians, but just everybody. Uh, you hear people today during the um, election year saying, oh, major economic crisis. No, it's not major. Compare us with third world nations. That is an economic emergency. When they're wondering where they're going to get their ne next meal. Uh, they're, they're, they're starving and there's rampant diseases. We are still prospering, the most prosperous nation in the world. China's a close second, but sometimes America, when we're at ease, sin comes in in a big way, and that's the story of what's happening in America. Woe to Americans that are at ease. Verses 12 to 14, here's some more doom that's predicted in light of the failure to hear God's call to repent, and it came to pass. Look at something in verse 15. It says, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and so forth. That's the Holy Spirit. He's mentioned even in Genesis 1. And he's mentioned all the way in the very last page of the Bible, Revelation 22. Holy Spirit is God. He's Spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. Uh, he's part of the Trinity. And he's mentioned occasionally in the Old Testament. Do a Bible study and see, where is he mentioned in the Old Testament? And in several places it says, like here, he's poured out. And that was predicted in Joel 2.28 that after Messiah Jesus would come, the Spirit would be poured out in a very special way upon his people. And that happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost after Jesus went to heaven. Now, it also says here a promise not just on you know, Pentecost, but in a time of blessing. The great blessings are not financial or even good health and prosperity. It's not just natural will, but spiritual will. And sometimes God takes pleasure in pouring out his spirit uh, unexpectedly in a big way in a church or in a city. Uh, someone tell me, what do we call that when the spirit is poured out in an extraordinary way and Christians are vivified and non-Christians are saved? It starts with an R. Revival. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to come and pour out the Spirit upon us. And uh, it can happen very suddenly and unexpectedly. So God promised uh, spiritual renewal, spiritual wheel to Israel. Then in 16 to 20, it's a time of blessed peace and righteousness after the time of the exile. And so again, the parallel lines of wheel and woe. And uh, various times, sometimes the nation goes from one to the other and back again. And I mentioned heaven and hell, but I think also these sort of verses talking about um, prosperity and peace and the lamb and the lion laying down together uh, will be fulfilled in history after the time of the second coming during what 
the millennium for a thousand years and then the eternal heaven and hell. We'll get back to that in a minute. Okay, chapter 33, another woe. Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered. You that deal treacherously, that means as a traitor, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. In other words, not yet. There's another woe addressed to thieves and cheats and traitors. And there are those today. They're just online scammers, they're bank robbers, there's even in high places in government, there's financial skullduggery. But notice it says, you have stolen, but they haven't stolen from you yet. But he goes on to say, they will. Um, there's no honor among thieves. You've heard that silly saying, there's honor among thieves. Don't you believe it. Uh, just ask the prison inmates that write to me. They say, they, 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 these guys will steal from anybody. They'll knife anybody, even members of their own gang. They'll, uh, well, there's no honor among sinners. They're all out for themselves. Verses 2 to 4, notice. Lord, be gracious to us. We've waited for you. So this is a hint of repentance. We're waiting upon God. Now, be gracious means, Lord, show us grace. What's grace? It's God's undeserved favor, his love. We don't deserve it. Brethren, when you go through a trial, don't say, Lord, I want justice. You want justice? He'll give you justice. Pray for grace. Pray for mercy that you don't deserve. That's what you really need. And pray this. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Help me. I know I don't deserve it, but you are a gracious God. Back to the text, verses 5 and 6. Notice these key words, great words. Justice, righteousness, wisdom, knowledge, salvation, the fear of the Lord. All of those are great spiritual blessings and virtues that we should seek for. That is true spiritual wheel, blessings. That wheel, by the way, is W-E-A-L. And we should go for that, not just the material. Better to be poor, or as the old timers used to say, poor as Job's turkey, but godly and blessed and wise and righteous than to be materially wealthy and healthy, but very ungodly. Know the difference and seek the right one. Verses 7 to 9, back to more doom threatened. Notice back and forth the warning of doom and the promise of, of, of blessing. 10 to 13, God will arise. Look at that word. He'll arise. We find that sometimes in scripture, like that one that was put to music once. Rise up, O king. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. When I read this, I remembered a famous saying by a Japanese admiral after the defeat of five of their battleships and carriers sunk after Pearl Harbor and America rose up in this, I think it was uh, Admiral Nagomo said, I fear that all we have done is awake a sleeping angry giant. He was right. America bounced back. God, sometimes people think, well, God's sleeping. No, no, he's not. The Bible says God neither slumbers nor sleeps, but one day he will arise. And it says elsewhere he's going to rise like a man from his sleep angry. Who woke me up? God will arise. And we can say, arise, O Lord, help me, defend us, uh, punish your enemies. Look at verse 14 now. Remember we're skimming over this. Sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. 
And I'll look at the second part of that in a moment. So God knows how to put fear into the hearts of even his enemies. That sometimes happens. Um, I can give you, I'll give you one illustration. I remember, you remember my testimony and I was saved with a guy named Justin Reith who later died. And he was very ungodly. He was a biker and did drugs and hung around bars and stuff like that. But um, he and I were talking outside of a church once and he said, you become a Christian. Well, I don't know about all that God stuff. And he said, I'm not even sure if there's a God. I'm not kidding. One second later, lightning struck within a hundred feet of us and Justin jumped. He said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He says, Kurt, there's something to this God stuff. He was scared. Person has a bad car accident. And that's God shaking him, saying, I am real. And it says here, fear will seize, it says, even religious hypocrites sometimes. The Bible puts a high premium on the fear of God. Ask yourself and be honest, do you truly fear God? You're afraid of his judgment? You respect him with a reverential attitude. Now, one day I'm going to preach just on the second half of this discourse, verse 13. Excuse me, I have the wrong section here. Where it says righteousness and fear, and then the fear of these people here. Look, oh, second half, verse 14. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Interesting question. Devouring fire and everlasting burnings, talking about hell. Is there fire in hell? You betcha. God says so. People that are there now already suffering the flames of God's wrath in hell. Jesus called it hell fire. So here's the question. Imagine Isaiah kind of paused and said, uh, who among us here is going to go to hell fire? Uh, I've quoted that sometimes when I preached on hell. Anybody here tonight that will end up in hell? Anybody that you know in your family, at work, neighborhood. Ask this question to someone. Josh, when you do street witnessing, ask them, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Who's going to hell and who's going to heaven? Most people are going to say, well, I think I'm going to heaven. I'm not perfect. But just say, how do you know you're not going to go to hell? Is it worth a gamble? Think about it. And then there are some idiots that say, yeah, I'm going to hell. Me and my buddy's going to have a big beer party and commit immorality and do drugs and have fun. We don't want to go to heaven. No, you're not going to want to go to hell once you're there. But ask them this question. Who is going to heaven and who is going to hell and why? Many think they're going to heaven when they really are going to hell. And ask them, if you think you're going to he heaven, how are you going to react if you end up in hell? You're going to feel you were swindled by the devil. You believed his lies and you were a hypocrite. Ask him, is it worth the risk? Because once in hell, you'll always be there. Again, the question, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Now he changes the tone in verse 15, talking about those that walking righteously and speak uprightly and despise the gain of oppression and they refuse bribes. So again, there's the contrast, not just the wheel and woe, but the godly and the ungodly people. Everybody in the world is one or the other. You're either Christian or you're not a Christian. Come to another great verse. Look at verse 17. Skip down. Oh, I like this. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. 
Who's the king? It's capitalized here. It's not talking about the king of Israel. It's talking about God. This is one of my favorite themes in the Bible. In fact, some theologians say this is the cream of heaven. What? Jesus said it in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Some theologians say, well, that's only the mental apprehension of God when we get to heaven. No, Job said, and I didn't write down the reference, he says, with my eyes, in my flesh, I shall, I shall see God. David said so in Psalm 27, 4. Revelation 22, 4, they shall see his face. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we will see face to face. We call that the beatific vision. Meditate upon that. We will actually see God face to face. And we see him through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful promise. Your eyes will see the king. I've said that to Charlie, who's blind. So Charlie, God's going to give you eyesight one day. And you'll see Jesus face to face. Amen. Let's go down to verse 22. This is interesting. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Let's identify the king whom we will see face to face. Did you know that when our United States Constitution was put together, there were Christians on the committee that remembered this verse. And they said, look at this. He is our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. That's a good balance of power within a government. And so they came up with the three branches of our federal government. Um, Congress makes the laws. Um, the executive branch, including the president, um, presides and enacts them. And then the Supreme Court judges them. And it's a good balance of power. Just study your, your civics textbook from high school. And that's true. Uh, Chief Justice John Marshall and others said, yes, we're patterning our government after God's government. That's a good, how, how far do you think they'd get with that today? They said, oh, no, 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 we believe in separation of church and state. Well, I don't. Okay, verse, uh, chapter 34 now. Come near you nations. That means the Gentiles, those that aren't Jews. Heed you people, let the earth hear and all that is in them, in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. Most of the Old Testament was addressed to Israel, but few parts are addressed to Gentiles like this, or Jonah going into Nineveh. And so God goes back and forth talking to his people. In other words, just like a preacher addresses the Christians and the non-Christians that are there. Verse 2, For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, his fury against all their armies, and so forth. Indignation and fury are, in other words, for anger. Did you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and one Hebrew scholar counted 20 different Hebrew words for the anger of God? Anger, wrath, and in English we'd say indignation, fury, stormy, ire, and they're all true. We should take seriously the wrath of God. He is angry. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. That's Psalm 711. Verses 3 and 4 now. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their this is earthy. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. There's nothing that stinks more than a decaying dead body. Even animals, but a human. I don't know if you all have ever smelled it. It is awful. The mountains shall be melted with their blood. In other words, it's like, you know, I don't want to get into it, but after 
a battle has been fought and there are tens of thousands of corpses out there that haven't been buried yet and the, the buzzards and the coyotes are picking at it. It is just ugly. It, it looks bad. It smells bad. Everything about it is terrible. And then God says, that's what's going to happen when the Babylonians conquer Israel. There are going to be dead bodies everywhere. And then it's going to happen to the Babylonians. And the ultimate of this is in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes, slays all of his enemies. It's just like, and I've used this analogy from the Bible, Noah and his uh, wife and their three sons and their three wives got on the ark and everybody else was drowned. Think about that. Millions of people drowned within one day. And when Noah looked out the window and he saw dead bodies floating everywhere. Have you ever seen a dead body in the ocean or the lake? It's been there for weeks. It's, it's disgusting. And one day at the second coming, the whole world will be decimated. Corpses everywhere. That's because of the wrath of God. When Babylon invaded, Israel had been scoffing, but when Babylonians came and they said, Isaiah was right after all. And that's what lost sinners will feel when they look up and see Jesus coming in fire and in wrath at the second coming. They'll say, those stupid Christians were right after all. But it'll be too late for them. Verses 5 to 7 now. My sword shall be bathed in, shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Eden. That's a neighboring nation. And on, on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. And, this is earthy. It is made overflowing with fatness with the blood of lambs and goats and so forth. The Lord has a sacrifice and a slaughter. Bible does not spare the earthiness of, of God's uh, vengeance. Babylonians had many swords. Israel didn't have too many. But what he's saying is, here's, your sword's not going to count for anything. It's going to be like waving a feather at God. God's got a sword. His is greater. And it always wins. And it says here, it's dipped in blood. Dipped in the blood of his enemies. Just like Revelation 19, when Jesus comes, it says, his white garments are splattered with the blood of his enemies. That happens in warfare. Hand-to-hand -hand fighting or someone is shot or steps on a landmine or something. It's very bloody. It's a terrible thing. Notice it says God has a sacrifice. He typifies it with the blood of lambs, goats, and so forth. Um, elsewhere in the Bible, it says that the ultimate sacrifice is God's enemies. They will be the sacrifice, bloody sacrifice. We either believe in Jesus to be our sacrifice to save us or we become a sacrifice that ends up condemning us. Verse 8, it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense. Vengeance. The Bible uses that. Now you hear the misuse of that. But there is a true godly just vengeance and revenge. It happens ultimately at the second coming. God sets everything right, judges his enemies. Nobody gets away with it. Romans 12 says, we are not to carry out vengeance and revenge. Not against someone that hurts us, steals from us, lies to us, whatever. It says, give place to vengeance. Leave it to God, because, and then he quotes the Old Testament. It says, God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Now, that again incorporates that parallel principle of weal and woe. It's woe to his, his enemies. Woe to you. God's going to take vengeance on you one day. You can't get away with your sin. 
crime doesn't pay and neither does sin. But then the opposite is it's a mixed blessing for believers. It is a blessing to believers when God punishes his enemy, their enemies. He protects us. So we can say, I can wait. God will take vengeance on my enemies and his. But you should pray for your enemies and not punish them yourself. Leave it to God. Uh, 9 to 15, more devastation and desolation. Like after a natural disaster, you've seen it on television. A big forest fire, an earthquake, a volcano, a flood. All sorts of natural disasters. And God's saying that's going to happen one day. And it also mentions wild animals out in the desert. Verses 11, 13, 14, and 15. And that could be typifying demons will inhabit a destroyed um, Babylon. But it's interesting. Wild, have you ever been out in the desert? I mean a real desert like the Mojave Desert or um, other parts of the world. Well, the Sahara Desert is by far, you know that the whole Sahara Desert is almost as big as the United States. That's awfully big. It's millions of square miles. Very little lives out there, just vast wasteland. But I remember going around Death Valley. You talk about a desert. Hardly anything grows out there. It's so hot and dry. But there are little animals that live out there. And at night you can maybe hear a coyote or something. God says you're going to, all these people are going to die and they're going to be wild animals there. Look at verse um, 14. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals. And the wild goat shall bleat to his companion. And the night creature, like a night owl, shall rest there and find herself a place of rest. Arrow snakes shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow and also be the hawks gathered. That would include the buzzards, the flying scavenger animals. That's not a pretty sight. Okay, we conclude for tonight a few lessons from chapter 35, verses 1 to 2. Wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. Did you know that that was partially fulfilled in the 20th century because before the 20th century, most of Israel was basically a desert. Even though at one time it was very prosperous. Remember it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey and uh, vineyards and all that. And then God punished and returned into a desert by and large. But in the early 20th century, after Israel wanted to become a nation again, they started doing cultivating of the land and, and, and crop rotation. And they brought in irrigation. You go over there now, you're going to find some areas of desert. But you're going to find huge vineyards and farmlands. And there'll be more of this, of course, worldwide after Jesus comes. The whole world will be like one big garden, like the Garden of Eden again, in the new heavens and the new earth and the millennium. Call your attention to a lovely phrase at the end of verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord. There's your vision of God. The excellency of our God. God is excellent. He excels everything. This was a leading theme in the writings of Jonathan Edwards. Jesus is excellent. He excels everybody else. He exceeds. God is excellent. What a wonderful phrase here. The glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Therefore, we can take courage. Verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble hands. That's the feeble knees. That's alluded to in the New Testament. Say to those that are fearful hearted, be strong, don't fear. Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. He'll protect us. 
Whenever you get discouraged, pray for God to draw near and to protect you and to realize one day God will protect all of his people when we go to heaven and when Jesus comes back to earth again. He'll take, he'll set everything right. Verses 5 to 7, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Again, this is characterizing the wheel, the blessings. Eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb, that is the voiceless, uh, will sing. Water shall burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, parched pool, and so forth. A lot of that was fulfilled in Jesus because he alluded to this and said to the disciples, go and tell John the Baptist who is doubting if I'm really the Messiah. He says, go and tell them that the blind are getting their sight and the lame are walking and so forth. And it will ultimately be fulfilled when? In our resurrection. No more physical afflictions like blindness, lameness, or being mute. And it also says, look at the end of verse 6, streams in the desert. Does anybody ever read that little daily devotional called Streams in the Desert? I bet your mother's familiar with it. little daily devotional by Mrs. Cowman. And it's taken from this here, Streams in the Desert. And it talks about all these wonderful things that are blessings from God. Verse 8, almost finished. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. In other words, a highway is something you use to travel. So we walk, we will one day walk on the highway of holiness. What a delightful metaphor. We conclude with verse 10. Uh, let me quote it from the King James. The redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, the everlasting joy. When I read that, I started humming one of the earliest Christian songs I learned. Does anybody know that song? Nikki, you probably know that. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Was I the only one that knew that? You knew that. Yeah, we ought to sing that more. That was one of the earliest songs I sang and that's one of the only times you're going to hear me sing a solo. But I love that song. Ransomed means you're redeemed. You're bought back. And I sang that with joy because we have something to be joyful about. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that this last verse we looked at tonight is a precious one. And we thank you that someone put it to music. We pray, Father, that you would bless us even when you have to chasten us. Protect us from all evil. Help us to walk the highway of holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Jeff.